Well, for the, uh, for the past few months, we've been studying the book of Judges. Um, and when the book was first opened to chapter 1, there were some details in there about a man and a woman who got married. And we brushed right over those details to stay focused on the bigger picture. We were uh, introducing ourselves to the book itself and to this period of time in Israel's history. And so if you would, uh, I'd ask you to turn with me there to Judges chapter 1, and we're going to revisit this. And uh, this is a power couple, a couple of a very godly man and woman, and they do deserve uh, more attention. Now in order to do this, we're going to have to go backwards in time. We're going to have to go back to the Old Testament. Let's go all the way back to, to Egypt when uh, the Jewish people were slaves in Egypt. And we remember that Moses led them out. So God rescued the Israelites. And when they left, they headed towards this land that God had promised them. So they crossed the wilderness. They crossed the desert. And when they came right up to the edge of the desert, they sent in 12 spies to check it out, to scout out the land and come back and give a report. And when they came back and gave that report, there were only two men, Joshua and Caleb, who came back with a favorable report. They said, yes, there are big cities, there are walled cities, there are, they have armies, but God has promised us this land, we can do it. The other 10 had a different report. They were afraid, and so the Jewish people did not enter into the land until that entire generation perished in the wilderness. We always talk about the, the wilderness wanderings with Moses. And this generation perished. They didn't get to enter. But because of Joshua and Caleb's loyalty and their faith in God, he allowed them to survive the wilderness and to enter the land when the time came. Now, uh, when they did enter the land, Joshua led that. He was in charge. He was the leader. And what his primary objective was to do was to enter the land and to take out all of the strongholds, the major strongholds. The very first big one that we remember in the book of Joshua is uh, Jericho. And so they would go throughout the land and they would take down these major strongholds. And then it fell on the responsibility of each respective tribe to go to their land and claim it. And what that involved was removing the people that were there and removing their idols. Obviously, those people had the opportunity to leave, but most of them stayed to fight. When it came time, the book of Judges opens after this conquest of Joshua has come to conclusion. And it's time for these tribes to enter their land. And so the book of Judges opens with the tribe of Judah being chosen by God to enter their territory first. And so when they went in, this is all in chapter 1, when they went in, they, they, uh, they were confronted by a king in Bezek. They defeated him. They moved on to Jerusalem and they captured Jerusalem. And then Caleb took his army and they moved to Hebron. And they conquered Hebron. And from there they marched to Debir. And Debir, what happens in Debir is our focus this morning. We're going to find out that this passage places an incredible value upon family. So it begins in verse 11. 
From there they marched against the residents of Debir. Caleb said, whoever strikes down and captures Kiriath Sefer, that's Debir, I will give my daughter Aksa to him as a wife. So Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's youngest brother, captured it. And Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him as his wife. When she arrived, she persuaded Othniel to ask her father for a field. And as she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, What do you want? And she answered him, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me land in the Negev, give me springs of water also. So Caleb gave her both the upper and lower springs. Now for those of you who care, uh, Hebron is 19 miles south of Jerusalem. And then Debir is 8 miles southwest of Hebron. I'll give you an idea of where we're talking. We're introduced to a man named Caleb and Othniel. Caleb's daughter's Axa. These are the three people that we're going to be looking at today. Now, in other places, we find out that Caleb's dad is named Jephunneh. And Othniel's dad is Kenez. Who cares? Right? Well, here's the interesting thing. The Bible tells us in Numbers chapter 13 that Caleb is from the tribe of Judah. And their dad is a descendant from Esau. And you remember the story of Jacob and Esau. They were the two brothers. And Esau gave up his birthright. And so the descendants of Israel came through the lineage of Jacob. He had 12 sons. The 12 tribes of Israel came from Jacob's 12 sons. Well, Caleb and Othniel and Aksa on the father's side come from descendants of Esau. And so we look here and it talks about how Caleb is his youngest brother. And so what could have happened is uh, Caleb's dad's Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, Kenizzite, he could have passed away. And then the mother remarried Kenaz. And so in that situation, Caleb and Othniel would have the same mother. But Kenaz could also just be referring to the tribe, the clan. And so uh, Caleb, is, you know, Othniel is basically Caleb's nephew. So it doesn't necessarily mean they were just uh, direct lined brothers. Um, regardless, what this shows us is that at some point in the past, the father's side was grafted into the vine. The father's side was grafted into the tribe of Judah. And so at some point, those people put their faith in God. And they became proselytes. And so uh, we find here in this passage, uh, just to go through what, we're, what we've read, it said that whoever strikes down and captures Debir, I will give my daughter Aksa to him as a wife. Now in Western culture, arranged marriages are kind of offensive. It's kind of like viewing a woman as, as property. You know, nobody wants their dad to give away their daughter like that anymore. Although it does happen all over the world in many cultures. But we have to recognize that it is kind of repulsive to us because we're in a Western culture. And what we try to do is we try to impose our uh, values, 
our uh, ideas of, of romance and personal rights, and we try to attach those and, and plug them in to ancient history and to foreign culture. If you lived in this period of time, under this situation, you wouldn't look at it in a negative way because you would understand that the idea is that this is to reflect deep concern and love for the father and his, his deep and loving concern that he has for his daughter. And so it's, it's actually something wonderful. If you'll think about it, uh, David married into Saul's royal household by defeating Goliath. You remember that? You see, the, the father had absolute rights over his kids, and especially when it came to marriage. But again, this reflected his concern and love for his daughter. So it's really the way you choose to look at it. If we're honest about it, what parent doesn't try to steer their children? Is there a, is there a parent that doesn't? We all do. We care about our kids and we want to see them walk the right way and, and, and when they're wanting to go date somebody and you just know it's a mistake, you know, what parent doesn't try to steer that away or ride that storm out? We all do. And that's at the heart of what's going on here with this arranged marriage. And we find out that after this battle, after Debir has been conquered, then she arrives. So she's arriving, finding out that she's been wed to this guy. She's going to be marrying Othniel. And so she's riding in on a donkey. And I know in the picture she's alone, but there's probably a lot of people that came with her. But it tells us that when she got there, this would have been after the battle, after the dust had settled. And she gets there and she persuades her husband, Othniel, to ask her dad for a field, for land. And he did. And he gave them land. But here she comes. And she's getting off that donkey. And here comes Caleb, the dad. And he says, says, what is it that you want? What's wrong? And she said, I want you to give me a blessing. Since you have given me land in the Negev, the Negev is desert. Give me water too. Give me springs. And so when he gave her the upper and lower springs, he basically gave her all of the water. All of the water of the land on the, on, the, on the outskirts of it all. So he really lavished her with this gift. We want to recognize that even though this was an arranged marriage, that the dad went to his daughter. He wanted to, to find out how she felt about this. Was she repulsed? And if she was repulsed, who knows how he would have reacted? We don't know. But... When Caleb made this proposition, whoever's going to go get Debir, he had to know that Othniel was a capable and godly man. He may have even known that Axe and him were in love. He had to have set this up. And we notice that when Axa arrives, her objection has nothing to do with the marriage. It's about the inadequacy of the land. These are very important for us to, to recognize. And so this is our passage. This is what has happened. It's just these four or five verses here. But within this, there are three very important observations that we want to make. Three very important ones. The first one is that God is sovereign. God is in control. 
Now, when you think about the sovereignty of God, it's going to depend on your attitude. If you're looking at it from the wrong way, then you're going to be very critical of God. Maybe you're mad at Him. We can all think of horrible things that have happened, and you're like, okay, God's in control. That's great. You know, this is great. Thanks, God. Or maybe we're just puppets on a string. And so it becomes our attitude and how we approach this. Because the sovereignty of God should encourage us. And it should give us confidence and a sense of peace. It's really a question of humility. In our passage that we're reading here, it calls God's sovereignty into the forefront because God made a promise to Abraham a long time ago. Part of that promise involved land. And so what we are watching happen in the Bible from the beginning up to where we're at right now in this first chapter of Judges, we're watching God fulfilling that promise through, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Caleb, and now Othniah, and Axa. As God fulfills His promise, as God is sovereign, it, it weaves through human history and it weaves through human history with real people, the lives of real people. And what this should mean to you and me is that Everything we're doing is part of His plan. It's sovereign. And we'll talk more about this. But it plays out in the lives of real people. And I want you to think about just what had to happen here in this passage. Othniel had to conquer Debir before he could get married. And he had to conquer Debir before he could get married. And this was before he could have a family. And this is before he could become the first judge in the book of Judges. In Judges chapter 3, he becomes the first judge. Yet it is God who made sure that Debir fell to Othniel. God was the one. God was the one who made sure that he survived the battle. God is the one who gave Axa the courage and the faith and the tenacity to approach her dad. And it's God who raised up Othniel to be the first judge. And so it's something that, you know, we can just like read through it and just bypass and not realize what it is that's actually happening. But in the process of all of these developments, God has been steering the ship. He is sovereign over all of these events. When we think about God's sovereignty, He also uses the wicked. He uses sin and disease, earthquakes. All of these things are tools. We've been studying the book of, of Judges and in the, in, the, in the past two, three weeks we've been studying the life of Gideon. And we saw how God raised up the Midianites to oppress Israel. And they oppressed Israel until Israel called out to God. And when they called out to God, that's when he raised up Othniel to deliver them. So behind the scenes 
of our text this morning, God is at work. This is it. This passage here, you've, you've heard this verse a million times. I have a friend, he had something really bad happen to him. Just recently, he had something really bad happen to him. And he said, I've heard that everything happens for a reason. And so you can see how his attitude is attached to how he is interpreting what's happening to him. And has everything to do with how he's going to see, how he's going to walk through everything. Our attitude is so important. And so, if there's nothing you get out of anything I've said so far, as far as God's sovereignty is concerned, it is that God has chosen to rescue certain people. And the things that He does are for the good of those He has rescued. In the process, there uh, is sin and bad things that happen. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God who are called according to his purpose. This is talking about people who are going to go to heaven. You know, uh, this isn't talking about lost people, is it? That promise doesn't apply to everybody. And so, if you hate God, or you're mad at God, or you're holding him... uh, under your thumb because he's done something wrong or he hasn't lived up to your expectations or you're too busy chasing fun, you haven't submitted your life to him at all, then this isn't a promise that you can claim. But for you and me, you and I, the ones who have put our faith in God, we live for him and we try our best to live for God and we put our faith in Christ, this is why the sovereignty of God is an encouragement to us. It can give us confidence in in facing tomorrow. It gives us confidence in facing our problems. And there's a sense of peace no matter what's going on in our lives. Do you guys realize what this means? It means that if you've received Christ as your Savior, if you've actually done that, then your life is not insignificant. It actually has meaning. Most of us spend so much of our time just trying to keep our head above water, paying bills, going to the doctor, fixing all of the things that break. And we can feel like we're uh, like a mouse on the wheel, just running around, going nowhere. But that's not the case. Your life, all of the things that you're doing, all of the, 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 the course of your life, you know, um, you may make some bad decisions as God would prefer you to go like this and you do this and he tries to bring you back. Some people just go shooting off like a bottle rocket in the wrong way and they never come back and it pops at the end and they're dead. You know, that's what happens with some people. But if, if, if you understand that your life has purpose and meaning because God is working out all things for your good, for you, This ties into the passage in this next section, and that is the, the value that is placed upon heritage. Heritage is something that is passed down. It's like an inheritance. I have my dad's Bible. I have his dad's lunchbox that he took to work with him every day. 
And if I were to take those things into a pawn shop, they wouldn't give me anything for them. But you couldn't buy them from me. It's my heritage. It's something I have inherited. It's something I want to hold on to dearly and pass down. Well, part of the thing that God did when he made these promises to Abraham is he promised him land. Part of the promise involved land. And as we talked about Caleb and, and Othniel and Aksa and how their father's side of the family was descended from Esau, Esau placed very little value on his inheritance. He, he, his birthright meant absolutely nothing to him. Maybe you know somebody who doesn't have anything good to say about their parents. Esau, on an empty stomach, traded his birthright for a meal. But that's not the end of the story, you guys, because his descendants are Othniel and Aksa and Caleb. These are remarkable people of faith. Caleb had been promised Hebron by Moses. And so after Moses had passed away, Moses reminded Joshua, he said, hey, remember, Hebron's mine. Well, when the time came, it was, it was his all along. God was going to give Hebron to Caleb from, from day one. But Caleb still had to go and conquer Hebron. And Aksa puts great value on this land because she's thinking far into the future as women do. You know, uh, Caleb thought he did, did Othniel a solid by giving him this land. But not the woman. I mean, my wife, wow. She sees things I do not see. And she said, oh, okay, that's a lot of land. That's great. Where's the water? And Othniel and Caleb were like, oh, we'd never thought of that. She's a remarkable, tenacious woman. She stands in contrast with many of the other Jewish women, the other Israelite women who intermarried with the Canaanites. You see, the Canaanites had no claim over the land. It wasn't promised to them. God promised that land to Israel. And so if you marry a Canaanite man, guess what? You don't have an inheritance. You have forfeited your heritage. And so many of these women did this. It's like a, a believer marrying an unbeliever. Where do you think that's going to take you? What's that, what's that going to look like? Church on Sunday morning? I doubt it. God wants us to be equally yoked. And so Axa uh, placed great faith in God and she asked for more. And she married within the faith. But we're not just talking about land, are we? What is the spiritual heritage of your family? Those, purse, those phones get locked in that the bottomless purse. <laughs> Don't they? So, but uh, think about your family and ask yourself this. What is the spiritual heritage of my family? What does it look like? There's a story of the Smiths that came off the Mayflower. 
many, many years later, they wanted to have, a, have it written down, and they hired a well-known author to, to write the story. And as they began to do research, they found out that there was an Uncle George who had been executed in the electric chair. We didn't really want to put that in the book, so the author said, oh, that's not a problem. I know exactly how to handle that. I know this is really cheesy, but I'm going to read it. He said, George Smith occupied a chair of applied electronics at an important government institution. He was attached to his position by the strongest of ties, and his death came as a sudden and complete shock. So. All of us have a responsibility to do our best to leave a godly heritage. Something that's going to be passed down through generations. I want my children to be Christians. And I want my children's children to be Christians. And I want them to teach their generation about God and what He's done for us and what Jesus did for us on the cross. I want a godly heritage. I want it to be this beautiful, gigantic family tree of faith. But all of us do not have perfect family trees, do we? So if things could be better, God can help. And this brings us up to our final observation. The first one is God is sovereign. And that He has a gift for us. An inheritance for us. It's eternal. And then the final one, is that this passage teaches us how to ask God for the things that we need, how we should approach Him. You know, a family tree and a, an inheritance, a heritage that you leave, doesn't have to just be your kids and your grandkids. It's the people that you have led to Christ, the people that you disciple, the people that you pray for, the people that you encourage, the, the ways that you have invested in other people. If you believe in the sovereignty of God, then you understand that He's in control. And He has a, a master plan that is beautiful and perfect. And it is designed for His kids. It is designed for those who love Him. And everything He does is working things out for the benefit of you, for His kids. God has left us with a perfect, eternal heritage. An inheritance that can never be taken away from us. So if you find yourself wishing things were better in one way or another, maybe you've been thinking about my question, what does your spiritual heritage actually look like? God can help. And so AXA gives us some really good advice on how to approach God for the things that we need. Now, most of the studies in this passage have all been about prayer, AXA's prayer, because uh, there's some things here that she teaches us that in, in this passage, there's some things that, there's some key components here that shows us how to approach God. And it's kind of funny because if you Google this passage on on YouTube or whatever. There's like a million sermons. And they're all the same. They're all the same. They're all these four, five, three or four points. And it's funny because they all come from the sermon that was preached in 1889. 
this guy named Charles Spurgeon. And uh, he was, a, for 38 years, he was a pastor of a church in London. And he preached this sermon at that church just a few years before he died. And it's a really good sermon. And so it's obvious why people are still drawing from the observations that he made. And I really believe God inspired Charles in, in, this, in helping him see these things in this passage and bring them to light for all of the other Christians that were going to follow him. He was called the, uh, the Prince of Preachers. I was telling Gene about this Wednesday night. Is they, they say that he may have actually preached to more than 10 million people in his lifetime. Charles Spurgeon. How to approach God with the things that we need. Number one, there's only three. Number one is the assessment. You have to know what it is that you need. You have to make an honest assessment. In order to do that, you have to be honest. You have to be humble. I told you about my friend had something bad happen to him. And he was thinking about what had happened to him and he said, I've heard that all things, I've heard that everything happens for a purpose. He said, I'd like to know what I did to deserve this. He thought about it and he didn't deserve it. That's a bad assessment. When you look at your life and you only want to look at your good qualities, if I were to take God's measuring rule, God's measuring ruler, and hold it up to my friend, it would not take long. He's a good guy. I like him. He's a nice person. But when you start putting God's holy, perfect standard up to him, all of a sudden he's in trouble and he's in trouble fast. So when you're in some situation, when you've got some kind of a problem, and you're wanting to approach God about it, you have to analyze it properly. You have to be honest. How did you get there? And what is it that I really need? Do I really need to win the lottery? Do I really need that car? Do I really need this job? Is this really the girlfriend? All of the things that we think we need. You have to make an honest assessment about yourself. Because you and I both know that many times a lot of our problems are self-induced. It does not do you any good to try to bring a problem to God when you're not being honest about it. And when you approach God, you need to do it with humility, honesty, and with respect. If someone's going to bring a problem to you, then you want them to have thought it through and to be coming to you with a balanced assessment of their problem. If you're going to take your problem and you're going to lay it at God's feet, It needs to be exposed from all angles, crystal clear, clean, a clean assessment. This is my problem. God, I need your help. It's very important for us to be honest with God right from the beginning. We think we know so much. We're so smart. Don't dirty it all up. When you assess your problem, make it crystal clear and clean so that light can hit it from all angles 
And then number two is access. The first one is you need to make a good assessment. The second one is access. You have to actually be able to approach God. God has to actually be your father. He's not everybody's father. You were born once through your mom. But you have to be born a second time. You have to be born into His family because you have to be His child. You have to be born again. Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It can't happen. And nobody gets to the Father except through the Son. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, no man comes into the Father but through Me. You have to go through Me. Not Buddha, not Confucius, not Allah. Jesus. Those are doctrines of demons. They are lies and they are taking people to hell. If you, if you have a problem, maybe you've really figured it out. You're like, I have really got a bad problem here. We have to have access to the throne. God has to be your Father. There has to have been a, come a place in your life at some point where you ask Jesus to come into your heart and wash away your sins. Because you wanted to have your fellowship restored with God. Because you've made such a mess of your life. And you, you want to be restored to Him. Reconciled with God through faith in Christ. This has everything to do with Axe's request. Because she was going and talking to her dad. She knew her dad and her dad knew her. They knew each other. They understood each other. There was communication between the two. There was love and trust. There was a relationship between the dad and his child. You have to have access. And finally, you have to ask. I believe it's James 4.2 that says you don't, have, you don't ask, you don't have because you haven't asked. You have to ask. Now, think about how you want to be asked things. What are some wrong ways that we can ask God? We can approach Him with pride. That's not going to work. We can approach Him with an accusing attitude. Maybe we don't want to admit it to Him, but it's in here and He can see that. And we're thinking, why didn't you keep this from happening? Uh, this never would have happened if you would have done this. Remember Hosea? <laughs> Remember when Hosea did that to God? Remember? God said, where's your wife? And he goes, my wife? The one you made me marry? You know? And remember Adam, that's what he said, the woman you gave me. So when you approach God, you know, you want to ask Him with the right heart, the attitude of your heart. You can't be proud, you can't be accusatory, critical. You can't be dishonest about it. Has anybody ever came to you asking to help them with something and they're lying. They haven't completely, you know, they're not being completely straight with you about it. They've got an agenda. They're just, they're, you know, you can't go to God and you can't flatter Him. You can't manipulate Him. You're not going to be able to work God into some corner where He's obligated to help you. And so the way you ask God is very important. 
And you should be grateful for the opportunity to just be able to bring your problem to Him. When you ask God, you come to Him with respect and you're direct and you're concise. God doesn't want to hear a bunch of flowery words. I don't, I don't want anybody to come to me asking me to help them with something and just blow a bunch of smoke around. I don't want to hear all that. Just tell me what the problem is. Concise, direct. Let him know what it is. And expect the best because Axa did that. She asked for a lot and she got a lot. In this passage this morning, we see how she went to her father and we see how her father responded. Let's pray.